morning, everyone. This Bible reading is from um, on page 393. Give you a moment. Hearing properly. Ah, there it is. 2 Kings 25, 27, verse 27 to 30. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honour higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. This second reading is from page 1024 and it's from Luke. Just give you a minute to get there. Luke chapter 1. Many have, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you might have been taught. Thank you. You say only one? Uh, what I mean is a problem that is intrinsic to its own claims. Uh, I don't mean a problem like uh, the problem of Christian bad behavior. That's not intrinsic. Everyone knows that a hateful Christian uh, is not getting Christianity right. So the problem with a hateful Christian isn't Christianity, it's their departure from Christianity. But what I mean is a, a vulnerability in Christianity that is inherent to its very own claims. And what I mean is Christianity sort of goes out on a limb and bases its whole spiritual plausibility on events that are meant to have taken place in time and space. Christianity grounds itself, so it says, in actual, verifiable history. This is quite unlike other religious uh, spiritual claims. So uh, Christians don't quite say things like, God wants you to pray five times a day. Or if you say uh, your meditative um, uh, mantra, you will undo your karma. I mean, those things are untestable. You can't debunk them. You can't investigate them. But you can't come with skeptical muscles and overthrow them. But actually, you listen to Christians carefully, and that's not quite how they talk. They say stuff like, at Christmas time, 
Jesus was born when Emperor Augustus was doing a worldwide census. That's a history claim. Or they say uh, Jesus was crucified by Governor Pontius Pilate. That's a history claim. Uh, When I say stuff like, if you meditate enough, you'll undo your karma, uh, I'm safe from your scrutiny. Right? You can't touch it. You believe it, you don't believe it, it's up to you. You can't debunk it. But as soon as I say, my guy was crucified by the fifth governor of Judea, that's everyone's turf. And thoughtful people are going to say, how do you know that? What's the evidence? Christianity premises itself on historical events. It's almost as if Christianity lays its head on the chopping block of historical scrutiny and invites everyone who wishes to come and take a swing. Now, this series is going to focus on the Jesus of history, but I can't resist, just at the opening of this first talk, saying something similar about the Old Testament. You might have been wondering, why on earth was there that weird Old Testament reading? That was just given to us. I'm sure the Bible reader thought, I I, I was told to read it, so I'll read it. I have no idea what it's about. The final lines of the whole history of Israel, right, ends up, the, the, the final paragraph ends up with Jehoiakim, the last king of Judah, in exile in Babylon. And the final line basically says that the, uh, the king of Babylon let Jehoiakim out of prison and put him on a daily food allowance. Full stop, thank you very much. That's the end of the Israelite history. Now, we could read this as a mere spiritual lesson, right? You could maybe draw out, and I'm sure a preacher who preached on it would draw out that this is a sign of hope in Israel's darkest hour. Okay, fine. But here's the thing. By a freak accident of archaeological uncovery, They found, just southwest of Baghdad, in the ruins of Babylon, from precisely the layer spoken about in this Old Testament, the very ration voucher written on stone, itemizing the oil rations, wine rations, and grain rations for, quote, Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That is freaky. We are in the realm of history. We are not in the realm of, you know, la-la land. And what is partly true of the Old Testament is remarkably true of the New Testament and our passage in particular. The core claims of Christianity are solid. They're solid. You can come to Christianity with your skeptical muscles fully flexed Take your best punch and the Jesus of history will just stand there smiling sweetly back at you, friendly and immovable. It's solid. It's a bit like this coin. This is a 2,000-year-old Roman denarius, the most successful coin of the ancient world, made of pure, well, almost pure, 80% silver. And for the last decade or so, I have worn this around my neck. It is a real 2,000-year-old Roman denarius. Excuse the noise. This was, in the day of Jesus, worth a day's wages. It's uh, worth a little more than my day's wages now. But I want to pass this around. I wear it partly to remind myself that history is solid. 
History isn't la-la land. History is a real time and place. And when you touch this, I'm going to get you to pass it back a few rows until it gets to Kylie Clark. Uh, I don't want it to go as far as Rob Clark, but Kylie is going to hold on <laughs> to it for me and bring it back to me. So we just send it back there till Kylie gets it. And as you hold it in your fingers, it, you, are, you are in touch with 2,000 years of history. And my, my point is this, and the reason I love to wear it and hand it out at audiences, and I haven't lost it yet, is that Christianity is solid like that piece of silver in your hands. These events are not the events of La La Land, but the events of history. And actually, that's what this uh, opening paragraph of Luke's gospel, read to us a moment ago, is all about. How solid this story, this biography of Jesus is. And notice at the very end of this opening paragraph of the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, we'll mention uh, Theophilus in a moment, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This word translated certainty is the Greek term asphaleia, which you can forget as soon as you've heard it, but it's a cool term because it's the term we get the English asphalt from. Asphalt, you know, the stuff they make roads out of, right? And asphaleia means solid. It means strong, immovable. Luke reckons you can come to know the solidness of this story. And here is basically my main thought for this first talk in this series. What is often suggested to be a vulnerability of Christianity is actually its strength. You can scrutinize its historical claims. And it really looks solid. Uh, these opening lines of Luke's gospel give us four dimensions of the asphalea, of the solidity of uh, this story about Jesus. And I want to take them briefly in turn, and then I think we've got time for a Q&A, although it depends how long I go on for. So, and the first thing I want to say from this opening paragraph about the asphalea of this story, the solidness of this story, has to do with the general historical character of the writing. Now, the, the first thing you notice if you pick up Luke's gospel and read this opening paragraph is that Luke thinks this is stuff that really happened. Eyewitnesses saw it and handed it on. Uh, Luke has investigated it. Luke has read other sources, and Luke now is putting an orderly account so that you can know how solid it is, right? The, you don't have to believe that, but all I'm saying is you can tell front up that this is a historical writing. This is a claim that stuff happened in time and space. Contrast it with the most famous opening paragraph of an ancient piece of literature. The most famous would probably be Homer's Iliad the famous Greek epic. But listen to how it opens compared to Luke. The wrath-seeing goddess of Peleus' son Achilles, the accursed wrath which brought countless sorrows upon the Achaeans and sent down to Hades many valiant souls of warriors and made the men themselves to be the spoil for dogs and birds of every kind. And thus the will of Zeus was brought to fulfillment of this sing. From the time when first there parted in strife, Atreus' son, lord of men, noble Achilles. Awesome. Also a legend. 
It doesn't even claim to be part of this world. It's a mythical world. But you contrast that with the opening paragraph of Luke, and we're in a different kind of literature. In fact, let me quote you the opening paragraph two chapters later in Luke, where Luke introduces the adult ministry of Jesus. This is another passage people don't like to be on the public reading roster for because it doesn't seem very important. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. There's something in that for all of us. It sounds boring, but it's awesome. This is such a historical pinpointing. See, in the time Luke wrote, you couldn't say AD 28 because they hadn't invented our calendar system for many centuries later. So the way he did it is he cross-referenced well-known figures, every one of whom listed here we can date from uh, surrounding non-biblical sources. All of them. And by saying when this guy was in this position, this one in this position, this one in this, we know this is AD 28 when Jesus launched his public ministry. Uh, what I'm saying is this is not a galaxy far, far away. This is not a story from Middle Earth, you know, where the Hobbit and all that happened. This is history from the Middle East. The character of the claim is profoundly historical. The second thing I want to say has to do with the date, the date of the New Testament writings, because you often hear that the Gospels were written centuries after Jesus, and how could you possibly trust anything that was centuries after Jesus? But here's the thing. They were actually written relatively close in time to Jesus. This is not just John Dixon's favorite numbers. Uh, This is the accepted data that we have for when the Gospels were written, very close in time. And the interesting thing is, you notice that Luke acknowledges he wasn't an eyewitness himself. He doesn't claim that. He claims to have received it from eyewitnesses, but here's the question I put to you. Why didn't he claim to actually be an eyewitness? I mean, if this whole thing was made up, why didn't he start by saying, I am one of the eyewitnesses of what we're about to have? We have other Gospels, like John, eyewitness, written by an eyewitness. But why doesn't Luke tell us that he was an eyewitness? Because this isn't made up. There's truth-telling right there. But the other thing it tells us is the date. Because if he has received it from eyewitnesses, that means he is in the first generation. That it means he is alive when the eyewitnesses were alive. And actually, we can verify this because in another document called the book of Acts, we can actually locate Luke in Jerusalem in the 40s AD. The author of this gospel we know was in Jerusalem with eyewitnesses in the 40s AD. Within about 15 years of the events, he's in touch with it all. Even if he writes his gospel in his old age... Let's just say he writes it in the 70s. He himself is in touch with all of this information in a very close space of time from the events themselves. Um, How close compared to other texts? Let me give you two of the most um, impressive and certain figures of ancient history and then talk to you about when the sources were written. Alexander the Great, the most famous of about 15 great Alexanders of the ancient world. 
Alexander the Great uh, ran around the world conquering it, okay? Uh, by the time he was 30, he'd conquered the world, okay? Just let that settle in and uh, have its impact. Uh, but did you know that our first biographical account of his life comes from 120 years after his death? That's Polybius for the nerds. Okay, what about Tiberius? Tiberius is the one whose mug is on the front of my coin, which is now in Kylie's safe hands. Is it soon? Okay, fine. Um, Tiberius, who reigned when Jesus lived. So this is a really good parallel. Everyone agrees that our best source for Emperor Tiberius is Tacitus, who writes 80 years after Tiberius is dead. Now compare it to the New Testament. And you'll see why ancient historians, not just theologians, ancient historians think the New Testament is pretty good, historically. We have texts about Jesus from within 20 years of his life. All of the New Testament texts, and there are 27 of them, are completed within about 60 years of his life. Now let that sink in. Our latest text in the New Testament is closer in time to Jesus than the very best source we have for the emperor who lived at the same time. This doesn't prove Christianity, but I hope it gives you a reason for picking up a gospel, maybe for the first time in a long time, and reading it with a little more seriousness. The date is in its favor. The third thing that uh, Luke tells us in this opening paragraph has to do with the sources. Um, if this were a different kind of talk, and, uh, you know, I was allowed to go on and on. Uh, we'd talk about all of the various sources that uh, I teach at my Sydney University course. There are at least 11 non-Christian references to Jesus from the ancient world, non-Christian references. So we have Jewish references, we have Greco-Roman references, and of course we have all the Christian references and the oral uh, traditions and so on. But I won't go into that. I just want to focus on Luke's sources. Because it may surprise uh, those who aren't used to reading Luke's gospel, maybe even surprise those who are, that Luke admits in his opening lines that many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things. Luke already knows of many written accounts of Jesus. He got some of his information from eyewitnesses, but some of it is from prior sources. And there's an awful lot of study into the sources in Luke's gospel, and we can actually detect them. There are three that are generally agreed. You don't have to worry about two of them. Q and L you can talk to me about later and maybe if you want to ask me about it in the question time. But one of the sources you will have heard of is Mark. That's Mark's gospel. That's also in the contents page of your New Testament, right? So that's a safe one. We know that one. Did you know that Luke, in the opinion of virtually everyone writing on this uh, topic, Luke has used Mark as one of his sources. 60% uh, of Mark appears in Luke. And then he, you know, uses Q and L and, and, and so on. But now this is, this is not just a nerdy thing that should stay in the university. This means we can check up on Luke. Because Luke would have had no idea that one day we would line up Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel and see how much Luke had changed Mark. Luke had the perfect freedom, writing to his audience, to do whatever he wanted with his sources. He could have amped up the stories. He could have, you know, made, uh, you know, Jesus swimming on the lake into Jesus walking on the lake. He could have done anything he liked. But actually, scholars do go line 
by line and check what Luke does with Mark and everyone agrees who's willing to do the research into it that Luke is very careful in using Mark. Even where the words are not exactly the same words because he doesn't claim to be citing as quoting, even where the words are slightly different, it's exactly the same story after story after story. This proves something that is worth just soaking up. We know that Luke is a faithful reporter, not a zealous innovator. At precisely the point he could have innovated, he doesn't. He has investigated everything carefully from the beginning and has faithfully brought it to our attention. There are many other things that we could draw out of this opening paragraph. I just have one more and then uh, we'll sort of land this plane. I want to talk about the status. What I mean is the social status of the New Testament. Uh, what kind of people wrote it? Um, it? It's very clear from the original language Luke uh, wrote in that he has pretty good Greek. Okay? He has a wide vocabulary and good grammar. But we also know he doesn't use literary Greek. He uses the Greek you would use in the marketplace to order your lamb suvlaki. This is not the Greek that they wrote philosophy in. That's high Greek. This Greek is called koine, common. That tells us something about Luke's social status and the social status of those that he's writing to, not the elites. Now, it's true Luke uh, mentions an elite in his opening paragraph. That's the Theophilus guy there. He says, uh, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't exactly know who Theophilus is, but the good money is on him either being some kind of benefactor or a local official who has some interest in Christianity. And Luke writes this and dedicates the volume to him. But the important thing is Luke defers to him. Luke speaks up to Theophilus as the most excellent Theophilus, which tells you where Luke sits, not as an elite character, but as an ordinary person. Now, why would anyone want to know this? Well, the New Testament offers us a rare example of history from below. I think this is profoundly important because the, almost all of our ancient writings are from elites, senators, governors. We have almost nothing from ordinary people from the ancient world. So if you've ever heard of Tacitus and Arian and Plutarch and Josephus, they are all elite of elite. The winners get to write the history, right? That's how it works. And there's always this sort of nagging worry when historians are reading elite literature. We're, we're worried that we're not quite hearing the voice of the masses. And we're a little bit worried that the literature itself is designed to control the masses. That, it's, that, that the actual telling of the history is a way of maintaining power. And we always have to take that into account when we're doing history. Now, some people say that that's also true of the New Testament. You sometimes hear people say, the New Testament was written by elites and the emperors like Constantine forced it on the poor population. 
You often hear, like, in the 4th century, Emperor Constantine wanted a new religion, so he commissioned the Gospels, and then they selected which were the best ones, the ones that you could control the masses with, and that's how we got the New Testament. If that sounds a little bit like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, that's because it's exactly what's in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. But there's a technical, historical term for that idea. Nuts. It's totally nuts. The New Testament is clearly the work of non-elites. This is beyond doubt because we know the writing is non-elite Greek. All of the main characters of the New Testament are non-elites. Even those who had some education, like Luke himself or uh, Paul, lost their social status when they became Christians. And all of our texts, all of the manuscript copies of the New Testament from the first three centuries are copied out by non-elite scribes. This is really easy to tell because if I showed you, and you had some Greek, if I showed you a second century uh, example of Luke's gospel and compared it with a fifth century copy of Luke's gospel, I mean, the fifth century one is beautiful. By then, they have power and they can pay scribes. In the early days, it's pretty scribbly. Now, you don't have to just uh, take my word for it. Here's one of the world's leading ancient historians, uh, from Oxford University, Teresa Morgan, um, whom I interviewed for my podcast earlier in the year, and she said something that I didn't really ask her about, actually, but she just said from her perspective as a, as a historian of the ancient world, one of the most remarkable features of the New Testament. Have a listen. A lot of the people who would have been listening to early Christian writings would have been much poorer than that. So this really is the community literature of very ordinary people. And as such, it's actually a priceless, I mean, aside from its religious value, it's a priceless document in social history of the lives of a very, a community of really pretty ordinary people in the early Roman Empire, of a kind that we have almost no parallel for. I mean, it's a very rare corpus of documents just for a social historian. Just for a social historian. Rare. When you read the Gospels, you are not reading the powerful and the elite. You're actually reading the literature of the underdog. And I know the church, as the histories rolled on, became a bit of a bully. But the original texts themselves come from the powerless. The last thing the New Testament is about is manipulating you, controlling you. It's history from below. In fact, it's a lot like the story that Luke goes on to tell. Because the story Luke goes on to tell is about the Lord who entered into history from below. You turn over a couple of pages in Luke and it's the manger scene. A manger. I know we think of manger as like the bed reserved for the Son of God that's only slept in at Christmas time. But a manger, right, it's just the animal feeding area. Inglorious. And, and, and of course, the story goes from the manger through Jesus' adult career, and it, and it climaxes on a cross, the lowest point in the world. The last thing this literature is about is bullying you. It's a message of incredible humility and self-sacrifice. And it's a message that was entrusted 
not to bullies, not to the elites who would control the masses. It was entrusted, if I can put it like this, to beggars who would share with other beggars where they found bread. That's how I think of these texts. So I guess I want to conclude today by saying Christianity is simultaneously solid and soft. Solid and soft. It's solid in the sense that it's based on things that are true. And when I say that, I don't mean just true for me, not true for you. I mean that kind of awkward truth that doesn't care what I think of it. Right? I can disbelieve it and it still is true. It's one of those sort of true, true things, not the truth that I say sipping Chardonnay. Oh, that's true for me. It's lovely that it's true for you, you know. And, uh, you know, the older I get, and maybe this is just age speaking, I'll find out at the 6 p.m. service tonight, I guess, if this is just age speaking. The older I get, the more I want my core convictions to be solid. Because I'm tired of our faddish culture. One thing is a fad this week. It'll be a different thing next week and another thing next week. And the things we hold dear this week will, 50 years from now, be looked down on exactly the same way we look back on 50 years ago as yesteryear and dismiss it. Culture is always in flux. Christianity is something solid. But it's also soft. By which I mean it's a solid truth that is not the truth of a bully. It's not a harsh truth. It's a truth about the Lord who gave himself for you. A truth that was entrusted to people just like you, maybe below you. It's a gentle truth. Um, Many of you know Simon Smart, the director of the Center for Public Christianity. Um, I have always loved a little picture of the Christian faith that he gives. He, he, He has this talk where he describes the Christian faith as a high jump mat. I don't know if you've heard him talk about this. He's a member of this church, right? But, um, and you might think, a high jump mat? Yeah, because the thing about a high jump mat, he says, is when you land in it, it's so soft. It's like, it's not like a gym mat, you know? It's far more droopy, you know? But if you've ever tried to move one of these things, it's immovable. They're so heavy. And he says Christianity is a lot like that. It's solid, and soft. You can't move it. But it won't harm you to bump into it. That's what I'm saying. Christianity can bear the weight of all of your doubts, of all of your skepticism, and it will treat you gently in all of your foibles and failures. So thank you, Lord. Uh, Help us to think clear thoughts today. Uh, Help us all to just remember those things that are important for us to remember and maybe forget those that are uh, maybe not so relevant. Lord, give give us clarity into these solid and soft truths at the heart of the Christian faith. In Jesus' name, amen.